0: All right. so if you were here last week, you recall that I said that part of the thrust of what's happening in chapter 4 when God goes and tells Moses to deliver a message to Pharaoh is that we're setting up a battle of deities. Pharaoh, as the supreme God of Egypt, stands as God's opponent, so to speak. And an interesting thing that we haven't elaborated on yet but we'll get fleshed out more, is that the same word used for slavery, the service that the people are subjected to to Pharaoh, is the exact same word that God uses for the services people are going to render to him. So in a very real sense, we're seeing the people of God need to be liberated from one God to live in light of the true God. Okay, so a battle is being set. And right here, people wonder what's going on. What is happening here? Well, frankly, from a military tactical perspective, uh, God is basically doing a baited ambush. You don't know what that means, but what you do is you have some people out in a position and hiding, okay, and, and you want the enemy to fully commit, but they're never going to fully commit against your whole entire force. So you send out that little advance party to set up an ambush, and, and and they attack. They they shoot a few bullets at the enemy, and then they retreat. And the enemy thinks, oh, we got him on the run. And so they chase. And guess where those people who were retreating are retreating back to the main line. So a baited ambush is used to get the enemy to commit. And right here, God is getting Pharaoh to commit. He's got the taste of victory. I'm gonna go in for the kill. And God is getting them on the hook. All right? But from a human perspective, when you're there in the moment, it doesn't seem like that's what's happening. It seems like they just got their dreams shot out of the sky. Have you ever had your dreams shot out of the sky? I remember when I was a boy, man... I didn't want to be an athlete. I didn't want to be an astronaut. You know what I wanted to be when I was a boy? An archaeologist. You want to know why I wanted to be an archaeologist? Because I had seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. But then I had my dreams dashed as I learned that if I became an archaeologist, I would fight two things, boredom and skin cancer. A child's dreams are one thing. But think about how you were in high school. Think back. You are in high school and you can't wait to be an adult. I can't wait. Man, these rules, these stink. I can't wait to get out on my own. Oh, I'll be free as a bird. I'm going to do what I want to do. How's that working out for you? Doesn't take very long of being in the real world to learn that life back at home wasn't so bad. Or you go to get married. Oh, this beautiful dove walking down the aisle is just going to stay a princess forever. And that charming man up there, oh, he's just going to, Real marriage is not like that. And then kids, oh, I can't wait to be a mommy or a dad. I'm going to throw the ball with my son. I'm going to, oh, my mom, I'm going to draw pictures for me. that stinks sometimes our bubbles get burst and reality comes and slaps us in the face and it's no fun at all but what happens when something similar seems to go on about becoming a Christian so many people come to faith in Christ thinking that if I come to Christ my life will be better They think that if I become a Christian, then some of these struggles I've been dealing with are going to go away. And what happens when they don't? What happens when you're stuck in the same old mundane? It's right then that we happen to get disappointed, discouraged, and disillusioned. And it's right there that we can come to question or doubt. Is God real? Or is God really who he says he is? Is God trustworthy and faithful? Because it seems in those moments that God has let us down. Or has he? Could it be that the startling jolt we get from reality checks is exactly what we need to awaken us out of the stupor, to get us to look around and see what's really going on? Could it be that that moment in which we feel that God has let us down, that God is powerless in our life, that that is precisely the moment in which God is the most active, setting up the pieces for our redemption and deliverance? Deliverance, that's a word in the salvation word group. We like to talk about in the Reformed tradition justification. We love that word, and that's a beautiful word. And that word talks about how we are declared righteous in the sight of God legally. But deliverance is a very real concept in the Salvation Word Group. Deliverance is God rescuing us from the presence, the power, and the pull. Sin. Now Egypt becomes synonymous with the land of sin. Okay, the people of God have gone native, and that's not a good thing. They've worshiped the idols of Egypt, they've come to accept the values and the priorities and the outlook of Egypt, and that's not a good thing. And what they need then is not so much just to be physically removed from the place. But Egypt has to get out of them. This passage reads like so many of our Christian experiences. If you recall back to last week, Moses is very nervous. He's afraid of how the leadership of Israel is going to react to his presence. Remember, he he, he doubts they're going to believe. Well, he shows up, and what immediately happens? They believe. And they worship. May, my goodness, this is off to a better start than I imagined. So he strolls into Pharaoh's throne room full of confidence. Oh, man, God's up to some good. And then like a, like a pheasant taking flight out of a South Dakota field, he blasts it out of the sky. He comes down hard. And he's devious. You know, I don't know how many of you are supervisors or who have been production supervisors, but if I think my people are lazy, then what I do is I increase their quota to increase production. You know, you're making 1,000 bricks a day, you have extra time on your hands, well now I want you to make 1,500, but he doesn't do that. He's not concerned about production, he's concerned with crushing them, which is why he keeps production the same, but we're not gonna give you the supplies, go get them yourself. It's aimed at psychologically crushing the people. And so the people are so disappointed that by the end of chapter 5, they're worse than they were before Moses ever showed up. God reassures Moses. And then when Moses goes and speaks to the people in 6.9, what happens? The people won't even believe. Their little foray into hope is over. They are done with this hope thing. So what went wrong? Or did something go wrong? Well, next week we're going to look at how this passage points out the real issue in our lives. Okay? But this week what I want to point out is something equally true. And that is a lot of their heartburn and heartache right here, is based upon the fact that they think God failed them. They think Moses, God's man, failed them. And they think so because of all these expectations that they had that were not biblical or true. Unrealistic expectations are the enemy of our active engagement in the present. So part of the Christian life centers around Proper expectation management, as Daniel and I have talked about in the past. So next week, come back and we're going to look at the, the real theological issue. But what I want to do right now is underscore some of the unrealistic expectations that this passage reveals. But first, I want to take you back to nineteen or uh, 2008 at Fort Bragg. I... Um, I was privileged. I had a commander who, who allowed me to have a final Friday program where, on the final Friday of the, the final working Friday of the month, I could have from the, from the subordinate units of our battalion X number of soldiers could come if they had performed well, if they had done all this stuff. They could come and, and to the chapel and we would watch an inspirational movie, have a little devotion, and they could go home early. And yeah, they had to come, I checked them in, it was accountability, it's the military. But it was a cool program where I was basically funneled people for the sake of ministry, it was pretty cool. Okay, and so people would come, and one day, a guy named Jeff came, and he, uh, he we, we watched Fireproof that day, that movie had just come out, and he was married, and he was addicted to pornography. So that movie spoke to him at a very powerful level. And wouldn't you know it, he comes to Jesus. He called on the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. And so for several weeks, maybe a couple months even, he was just excited, elated. But then he came to me a few months after the fact and he was very discouraged. And you can probably guess what happened. He'd thought that his Addiction would go away because Jesus saved him. And it hadn't disappeared overnight. He thought that God had actually been unfaithful to him. He thought that he'd been sold a false bill of goods. You ever feel that way about something? Maybe an issue you struggle with? Now the issue with this deliverance passage is God is worried and concerned about getting you delivered from sin's power and pull. When Jesus saves us, he didn't just save us from the guilt of sin. Sanctification is God cutting out sin in our lives with its attractiveness and its desirability, its pull and power. But we resist that so often. And that's what happened here. They thought that God saying, I'm going to deliver you, meant I'm going to deliver you now. And I'm going to deliver you entirely. And so in 4:30, when it says that God they spoke all the words that God had said, and in verse 31, they praise God because the cavalry's here. God's going to save me now. Hallelujah. My problems are over. And that's not the case. So I would suggest that they had four, at least four misconceptions, and we may struggle them with them, too. The first one is that they had expected deliverance to be both quick and easy. Quick and easy. This expectation was born and continues to be born because they engaged in selective hearing. If you recall in verse 4 verse chapter 4 verse 30, it says that they spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to them. Okay? So they told the people all the words that the Lord had said. Now, what were some of the things that the Lord had said? Well, in chapter 3, verse 19, God says, Pharaoh won't let you go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. So I'm going to stretch out my hand and smite them. Had they been smitten? Then in chapter 4, God said, I am going to harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. Now, what happens when you take a man who's already cruel, and you harden his heart? Do you think that's going to make him nicer? More agreeable? No. You see, what they heard was promised land milk and honey, remembered the covenant. I've come down. They engaged in selective hearing. The same way so many today engage in selective hearing. What they hear is, I've come that they might have an abundant life. I'll give you all things if you ask in my name. New Redemption, all things, oh, glory. And what they forget is that Jesus has said, in this world you will have trouble. And a servant is not above his master. And if they hated me, they will hate you. Okay? Selective hearing, hearing half the message, is a huge part of our sense of disillusionment. God has not promised you a quick and easy deliverance from the presence, power, and pull of sin in your life. You will struggle with it all the days of your life. Listen to the full message. The second false expectation or unrealistic expectation that informed their sense of disillusionment was that they had a very specific expectation for what deliverance would look like. Think about it. They only cried out once the heat got turned up too high, they cried out because of their oppression. The Lord says, I've seen their oppression. I've come down to lead them out. Well, then that means deliverance looks like God getting me out of my sense of oppression. As we will learn, they're not so worried about leaving geographically. They just want the press and oppression to lighten up. They just want it to not be so unbearable. Just like Jeff. Deliverance meant him not struggling with his desire for pornography. Because he didn't like the the fight. He didn't like his wife angry at him. Those are good things not to like. But how many of us want God to do something for us because I want my kids to turn out right. I want to have a comfortable life. I want my wife to love me. I want my husband to love me. I want my boss to like me. I want to be popular. I want to be beautiful. I want to be well-adjusted. And so, God, I'm crying out to you for these things. And you've promised to be and do all that I need, and I know best. And if you love me, you would do this for me. Because I know that if I loved my kids or my neighbor, if I was in your position, I would do it this way at this time. And that makes God a tool. And our God is a consuming fire who does not bend or sway. He follows his plan for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Could it be that we rail and we moan because we want something that's far too small? Could it be that God is at work setting the pieces in motion for a bigger thing than what you're looking at? Could it be that we're asking God to settle when in actuality he wants to give us everything? Could it be that like Jeff, Jeff wanted to be free from having his wife mad at him. But could it be that God wants something bigger for him than that? Could it be that God wants something bigger for you than for your kids to be well-adjusted? Could it be that God wants something bigger for you than for you to be happy all the time? Could it be? Could it be? Third, it's clear from other passages such as Exodus chapter 14, 12, that the people were completely happy in Egypt. And we see it here. Moses has already told them that God's going to get them out of here. But what what do they do? As soon as the pressure comes on in chapter 5, verse 15, what do they do? They go and appeal to Pharaoh like he's someone who can be reasoned with. Moses, we just want to get along. You've ruined it for us. Now they're out to get us. We just want to get along with these people. That's the attitude of someone who thinks they're staying. They thought they were fine just where they were. God, we want your help dealing with this painful situation, but the basic context is just fine. People come to Jesus, or at least cry out to Jesus, all the time when the pressure's up. It's the effects of some aspect of sin or a corrupted world that get people to cry out to God when they don't really want God to interfere and change their life at all. Just make the hurting stop and leave the rest of me alone. They want peace in and peace with Egypt. But God knows there can be no peace for his people in Egypt. Egypt has to go. And it has to get out of his people. So God sometimes, sometimes lets us stew in that moment to help us see this is not our home. And this thing cannot really satisfy. Fourth, and finally, they presumed upon God's calling like happens so often throughout biblical history, they took God's on our side with an implied sense that I can do pretty much whatever and however I want, and success is guaranteed. You see it right here in chapter 5, verse 1. Moses is so confident, he's so encouraged by how the Israelites react that he goes into Pharaoh and he goes off script. And what's interesting is after we move past this passage, you'll see that the text is very clear to note how carefully Moses is in the future to follow the script, okay? But I want you to keep your eyes on chapter 5, verse 1. I want you to look this, because this is what he says to Pharaoh, and I'm going to read to you what God actually told him to say back in chapter 3, verse 18. So look at chapter 5, verse 1, at what he says and compare it with what I'm about to read from chapter 3, verse 18. Okay, This is what God says to say, and you guys read what, God, what, what Moses actually says. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a 3 days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Is that what Moses says? What does Moses say? Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh, who's the Lord? And then they, they come back. And, and, and they, please? Now, I don't know how, how much experience you have in a, in a negotiation, but they, they just played their hand. I mean, this, they, they are whipped. They're like dogs with their tails between their legs. Please? At that point, they've lost. Please? Please? Let us go before he kills us. God didn't threaten to kill them. They presumed. And so he went in there full of himself, and he got smacked down. How many of us think that because God has called us that we can pretty much do whatever we want, or that we don't have to do things smart? And here, well... I remember uh, back when I had my crisis of faith back in college, I I was taking a physical fitness exam for a police department, and there was this guy, I don't remember his name, but he was talking about how God wants me to be a police officer, so I'm going to be a police officer. And he didn't even try to prepare himself for this physical fitness exam. It's like the kid who who doesn't study for the test, thinking that the Holy Spirit's going to miracle the knowledge into their head of course, he failed the run. And he thought, oh, God lied to me or something. (laughs) You didn't prepare, pal. Now, churches and Christians, I think, are really bad about this. See, Jesus has said this in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Mm -mm. That means it doesn't matter how we do business. We we just got to preach the gospel and everything, and our church will grow. There's five to 7,000 gospel-preaching churches a year that close. You see, when Jesus says, I will build my church, he doesn't mean he's going to promise to build any particular church. It's the church itself will exist and will grow, and the gates of hell will not overcome the church, period. He's not making any promise to any particular local church. Jesus has told us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves so it matters it matters if we're friendly to visitors it matters if we're speaking the truth in love it matters how we do things it matters and it matters in your own life are you following scripture thinking that it doesn't matter what else you do no God gave you a noodle between your ears, use it So four erroneous expectations. That deliverance would be quick and easy. That there was a very particular kind of thing that they were going to consider acceptable response from God. That they were basically fine where they were. And that God being on their side meant everything else was taken care of and all they had to do was reap the benefit. These four unrealistic expectations resulted in their bubble being burst bad. Brothers and sisters, my desire for you is that your life would be governed by reasonable expectations and true expectations informed by the Word of God so that you can face reality with the eyes that see what the Lord is doing through His promises rather than discouragement based upon those burst bubbles. Let us pray.